Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Now, we are in mid-December now, so for many of you, that means starting to think about taxes and ways that you can potentially maximize your ability to deduct some of that money and, and keep some of it in your pocket. I think this is really important. I think people should be focusing on that more because it's more than just about making money. You have to figure out how to save some of your money as well. And we do that legally. So now it's as good time as ever to go to wealthformula.com and download my special report on how to legally save thousands of dollars on taxes and put it to work. I mean, the other thing you can do is a few shows back, we had Tom Wheelwright on, who is Robert Kiyosaki's tax advisor and the author of Tax-Free Wealth. Now, if you don't believe me, that's fine, but hopefully you'll believe Robert Kiyosaki's advisor that there's more that you can do than you probably think you can. So certainly go to wealthformula.com, get the download, and also listen to Tom Wheelwright. In addition to that, if you are an accredited investor, I do uh, encourage you to sign up for my investor club. Uh, in specific, in the next week, I will be discussing a little bit about the different things that I'm doing in terms of tax reduction. So this isn't just a, just a club for people and introducing potential investments. It's also a strategy group too. So if you do fall into that category as an accredited investor, certainly consider signing up for my group. And when you do that, we're going to have a conversation first and figure out where you're at. Now, today's show, I think you will find very interesting. And we titled it Cash Flow Versus Capital Gain with a White Coat Investor. So you know I'm a pretty passionate guy about entrepreneurship and investing and specifically tend to be pretty dogmatic when it comes to investing in real assets that cash flow. Am I right? Well, I think I am. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. That said, there's plenty of rational, smart human beings out there that are investing in more traditional ways. Are they wrong? Well, I don't know if they're wrong, but I've, I personally don't think that that's the way to go. But in reality, what it really comes down to is I've looked at both sides of the coin and, and I've decided that I belong on this side. And whatever you decide is your personal investment philosophy. But what you do need to understand that is that it is critical for you to understand what the other side is thinking, because you can't really learn anything if you listen to only people with whom you agree. So that's why I wanted to talk to Dr. Jim Dahl. Now, he's a practicing board certified emergency medicine doctor, and he's also the editor of the White Coat Investor at whitecoatinvestor.com. 
this is a very popular financial blog that's focused on financial education for physicians. In essence, what Dr. Dahl is doing is somewhat similar to what I'm doing with a couple of major differences. Now, my show focuses on all high-paid professionals and entrepreneurs, not just doctors. And the more pronounced difference uh, is that his views of investing are more traditional than mine. And as you know by now, I'm a hard asset investor, and I personally am not a huge fan of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. But that doesn't mean that there is no validity to them. You just have to decide that for yourself. And furthermore, that's not an attack on Dr. Jim Dahl at all. I mean, we just don't see things that similarly. You know, Dr. Dahl offers a great deal of financial education on his site that is really worth checking out. And a lot of it, even if you are already hardcore, hard asset cash flow guy like me, is in neutral territory. I mean, it's it's information that is very useful and you simply can't have too much financial education. You just have to come up with your own investing philosophy. And most importantly, Jim and I will both tell you that we strongly believe that financial education and taking action and in investing is critical to your future. Now, I have a great deal of respect for Dr. Jim Dahl and what he's doing because his mission is a noble one, to help the overeducated but financially ignorant. Now, that's something I'd like to do as well. Now, I'm not calling you guys all financially ignorant. Believe me, I'm sure there's a lot of you out there that know a lot more than I do about financial stuff. In fact, when I finished my residency training in 2008, I was an absolute financial dumbo. Okay, the first thing we need to do is check our egos at the door and make sure that despite the fact that we have advanced degrees in medicine and law, we have MBAs, etc., we admit to ourselves that we have a certain level of ignorance when it comes to financial education and we are going to get educated. So this particular podcast, I think you'll find very interesting because we're, you're going to hear about ultimately two personal investment philosophies from two different doctors. Taking financial advice from doctors, when you ever hear that before, right? But listen, here, this is a great opportunity to hear two sides of the coin, and you can sit at the very edge and pick and choose what you believe in and what you think, and most importantly, take action. So the way we're going to do this is first, I'm going to interview Dr. Jim Dahl, and then we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, you're going to hear an interview with me done by Pete Matthew of the Meaningful Money Podcast. And you can see for yourself what the differences are, see what resonates with you, and hopefully either way, take action. So when we come back, we'll start with Dr. Jim Dahl, the White Coat Investor. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. 
Welcome back to the Wealth Formula Podcast, everybody. Today, my guest is Dr. Jim Dahl. Now, Jim's site is very popular. He gets about half a million page views per month across the world. So this is a guy who's got a lot of um, advice for doctors, and I, and I think a lot of very good advice with various things. Certainly, we we have some differences in philosophy, which we're going to talk about a little bit today, but I'm very, very happy to have Jim on the show because he and I share the mission of uh, financial education. So welcome, Jim. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So Jim, you and I, as I said, have a common mission, and that is to educate doctors. In your case, in my case, it's not only doctors, but generally what I, my my audience is doctors, lawyers, you know, software engineers, and other high-paid professionals about investing. And that's in particular with doctors. You know, I, I talked to Tom Wheelwright last week, who's a Rich Dad advisor, and and Tom had mentioned something that I hear all the time, which is that doctors in particular are notoriously bad at investing. So can you tell me why you think that that's the case? I think there's three reasons, really. The first reason is that we get no training in business, personal finance, or investing throughout our lengthy training career. And so we come out in our early 30s out of the training pipeline knowing a lot about a little, and uh, that little does not include business principles. The second reason is we have this huge jump in income as we go from being a resident to being an attending physician. And it's really difficult for doctors to manage that. They tend to grow way past their income right off the bat and end up not leveraging their greatest asset, which is this relatively high income. And then the third reason is physicians have sworn a Hippocratic oath that they'll do what's right for their patients. And they assume that this applies to every profession in the world, which, uh, especially when you get into the financial services realm, is uh, not always true. I love all of those points. And when I think about it, you can almost look at a parallel in, in everything that you said with examples that everybody can understand. Like when a resident goes from, you know, I trained in San Francisco, uh, made $50,000 a year as a chief resident, which in San Francisco is below the poverty line. And, you know, in my first year was making about $400,000 the next year. So it's literally like those stories you hear about lottery winners that lose all their money, right? So that's, that's exactly what it yeah. is. Yeah. The next thing is the Hippocratic Oath. That's a great example. Fantastic example, Jim, because as you know, and we talk on this show a lot, you know, Wall Street, as a general rule, I have this mantra, which is Wall Street is not there to make us money. They're there to take our money. And for the most part, you know, a lot of times people aren't realizing that those great projections and performance that they have don't include a three and a half percent load. And what they're really getting is is nothing near that. And as doctors, if somebody had that kind of risk, we would make them aware of that and not let them just kind of, uh, you know, it was sort of like letting bleeding go without stopping it and just letting somebody walk out the door. And then finally, the training issue that we've talked about on this show again before. And again, this applies not only to physicians, but every high trained professional. And it's like we have our nose down in the books the whole time. We think we're real smart. We get A's, we focus on something. And next thing you know, we've got money in our hands. We have no clue what to do with it because we spent all of our time trying to be really good at you know what we're studying to do. So let's talk a little bit about how the white coat investor came to be, because obviously this is something that has really taken off for you. And it's an entrepreneurial activity for sure, which I applaud you to. But tell me the story behind that a little bit. 
Well, the story goes back really to when I was training as a resident. About halfway through residency, I realized that I'd been ripped off again in some advice I'd be getting, I'd been getting. And uh, when I go back, it looks like I've been ripped off by just about every type of financial service professional there is. I've been ripped off by a lender. I've been ripped off by an appraiser. I've been ripped off by a financial advisor, an insurance agent, a recruiter, you name it. I've been ripped off by it. But by the time I was halfway through residency, I realized I got to do something about this. If I don't actually learn how the financial world works, this is just going to repeat itself throughout my life. So I started reading. I happened to live next to door to a used bookstore, and I'd go over there and pick up used books. And I read and read and read and realized I really kind of liked this stuff and had an interest in it. And so I started spending time online on forums and blogs. And after a few years, I realized I was doing a heck of a lot more teaching than I was learning. And uh, I got sick of typing the same thing into the Internet over and over again. So I decided I'd start a website where I could just post a link and not have to type the same thing over and over again. And so that is what grew into the White Coat Investor. But from day one, my secondary goal with it was to actually make some money and feed my entrepreneurial spirit. And so I put ads on it from week one, even when nobody was reading it, and uh, tried to also learn about online entrepreneurship as I went along. And that's been a lot of fun as well. But without that entrepreneurial component, I don't know if I could have stayed interested in it enough to do all the work I've done over the last six years with it. That's right. I mean, that's a big part of it, right? It's human nature to need to see some of the fruits of your labor, and I think you're seeing that. So congratulations on that. Now, let's talk a little bit specifically about your investment philosophy. And some of these things, obviously, you know, are, are different from things that I talk about, which is okay. I mean, we need to hear all the perspectives. So what does a good retirement portfolio look like to you? I mean, do you invest in mutual funds and ETFs and that sort of thing? What if, you know, just give me sort of, and I know you can't simplify it that much, but give me sort of a broad base idea of, of what you consider a good retirement investment portfolio looks like. Sure. I think probably I almost have to answer a question before that one to get there. And I think that is what's really the key to success as a high-income professional when it comes to investing. And the key has less to do with your investments than it does with to how much you invest. What really makes a difference is how much money you make and what your savings rate is out of that money. If you're only saving 2% of your income each year, it really doesn't matter what you're investing it in. It's just not going to be enough. And so I generally recommend a 20% savings rate that you take 20% of your gross and put that toward building wealth. And so I think if you combine a high income profession uh, with any kind of reasonable investing plan and a good savings rate, I think you're going to find financial success. And so I'm less dogmatic about how you invest it than how much you invest as you go along. It's important, of course, also to keep your fees and expenses and taxes low. And there's lots of techniques to do that, no matter what you're really investing in. But when I'm looking at investments, what I like to see are assets with a good rate of return and low correlation with the rest of the portfolio. And so that may include investing in uh, businesses that are publicly traded, uh, such as stocks. It may include investing in uh, loans to companies and governments, which are bonds. It may include privately owned businesses. It may include real estate uh, that you own directly or that you own in a syndicated manner with other investments. And so I think the important thing is to be broadly diversified, keep your fees and taxes low, 
and be taking on an adequate amount of risk in the portfolio. But whether you've got 80% of the portfolio in stocks and 20% in real estate, or whether you're 80% real estate and uh, 20% stocks, I think is less important than those other principles. You know, the way I discovered you, Jim, was there was a, a webinar, of, I, I believe, on one of these, you know, doctor education things. It wasn't just about money, but it was just, uh, you know, people doing little um, uh, continuing education type things. And I watched it. In particular, you were talking about, you know, sort of a retirement plan. And, you know, I've heard you sort of target this idea of, you know, 5% real annual growth as a realistic projection, uh, generally of, you know, your, of your portfolio. I'd like to ask you first, where do you get that number from? Cause it's obviously it's a, in, assuming inflation is running probably at about 2%. So that'd be, you know, 7% nominal growth. And that's what a lot of people say. And I presume it's because of historical performance, but I don't want to assume, but why? I, and is the past performance of the markets that we're talking about safe to use in our current financial climate? Well, I don't know that it is safe to use in our current financial climate. That's an excellent point. And that's part of the reason that a lot of people are throwing out numbers out there that are a lot less than historical returns. For example, the historical return of the stock market over the last 100 or 150 years is about 7% real or 7% after inflation. But when you go back over most of that period, the dividend rate was higher. And so uh, most uh, investment authorities are kind of reducing that. How much you reduce it by really depends on a lot of things, but knocking a couple of percent off it is probably a reasonable thing to do. And so that gets you down from the historical 7% to a 4 or 5% real. So if you're looking to get returns that are higher than that in the long run, you're either going to have to take on more risk, or you're going to have to use leverage, or you're going to have to put some active work into the investment. I think that's where our perspectives are a little bit different because I think there is a an assumption in there that there is going to be some level of growth. And I think, you know, people like me and, you know, I'm not one of those people who thinks the sky's falling, but I am also, you know, I also look around at where we are in the world right now. We've had, you know, zero or near zero interest rates for the last eight years, you know, massive corporate buyback, or we have a national debt of $20 trillion dollars, which is about four times what it was a decade ago. And we've never seen a situation in a world like this. You know, corporate earnings are okay, but valuations are downright stupid right now. And if you look at it, and guys who are the pros in this, like Soros, George Soros and Jim Rogers are all shorting the S&P. And so that's what I think guys like me say, can we really make those assumptions? Can we really make those assumptions? What do you say to people like us? Well, I think the important thing is to realize what you're doing when you buy a stock. We'll just assume a publicly traded stock like Amazon. You're actually owning a part of that business. And it's a well-run business that actually makes money. When it makes money, you make money. Now, the rate of return, of course, especially in the short term, depends on valuations and what price you're getting when you buy those companies. So there's no doubt if you're buying into the market at, you know six or seven years into a bull market, you're not going to have as good of a return on that invested dollar as you are if you bought at the bottom of a bear market in you know the end of 2008. There's no doubt about that. However, you got to keep in mind what you're buying is not some slot on the roulette table. You're actually buying part of a going concern that actually makes money. 
And in the long run, as it makes money, you'll make money. And the valuation factor becomes canceled out somewhat over the long term. I think one of the issues, again, is that we have to determine what our own timelines are when we make that, those uh, type of speculative maneuvers. Because I think, while I, I don't completely disagree with your thought in a general positive trajectory of the markets, I think when we're, when we're thinking about our own retirement, it, to me, it's sort of a moving target. When does that market correction happen? Does that market correction happen just as I need the money? And that's what worries me. You know, it's funny to me, Jim, this may be simply the difference between me being a surgeon <laughs> and you being, uh, you know, and, and you being an emergency med doc. Now, you guys do a lot of procedures, too. But I like the precise idea of knowing exactly when I'm cutting, what I'm doing and the outcome right then and there. And so so there's still a piece of this to me that that makes me nervous because I think it uh, allows for a lot of speculation in a financial climate that I think the world's never seen. But but that's not to say, I believe me, I'm not saying you're wrong. I don't know if I'm wrong. It's just a different perspective. I think it's important to bear in mind that every period of time has never been seen before. I mean, people said the same things in the 1970s when they were seeing stagflation. They said the same thing in the 40s when the entire world was at war. You know, they said the same thing when the, you know, the internet era happened. But over the long run, if you can afford to invest for the long run, markets have overcome these things. Markets have, you know, in, in many ways, they're the worst way to run an economy except for everything else we've ever tried. There's no doubt they have problems. However, they're also very resilient uh, and tend to bounce back. So I think the key is not to avoid something because there may be some sort of a speculative component in it because there's a speculative component in nearly everything you invest in, but simply to find an appropriate way to manage it. For example, you men mentioned a fear that your money will be worth less right at the time you need it. And really the key to managing that is not having money you're gonna need anytime soon uh, invested in something like stocks or even real estate. And so I think that's it's best to manage that aspect rather than to just avoid it completely. And again, I think these are uh, perspectives that are very different, very valid, and I'm glad to get your perspective on this. Now, when you look at your own individual investments, do you look at the individual companies in your portfolio or do you rely on broad indices? I assume you're using some ETFs and that sort of thing, but tell me kind of what your philosophy on that is. Well, as far as it comes to investing in publicly traded securities, it turns out if you really look at the evidence that there is very little evidence that a wise thing to do is to pick individual securities. There's also very little evidence that anybody on Wall Street is particularly good at picking those securities uh, in the same way. So when you really look at it, the wise thing to do is to just buy them all and keep your costs and taxes very low. And that's basically what an index fund does. It buys all the stocks. And in two minutes, you can buy a little piece of every publicly traded business in the world. And so that's what I generally recommend when it comes to that aspect of your portfolio, that you stick with an index fund. Because over the long run, the evidence is very clear that it does better than picking individual stocks yourself, and it does better than trying to choose between actively managed mutual fund managers. Yeah, and to your point, I saw a statistic in the last 10 years, I think 98% of actively managed funds actually did worse 
than the market itself. And then, of course, you take on top of the actively managed funds or, you know, you've got these heavy fees and commissions. You know, even if you really were doing 7%, it may end, it may end up being only 3%, which if you look, you know, I think I read somewhere, and you can correct me if you, you know, but mutual funds in particular have this load of, an average load of over 3%, which is an enormous cut out from your yield over time. You know, what's interesting about that is that concept is actually part of what finally spurred me on to do my own financial education. I thought I was in what's called a no-load fund, of which there are many, particularly from companies like Vanguard or Fidelity, and then realized that my financial salesman that called himself a financial advisor was putting me into loaded mutual funds. Right. And, uh, you know, it's important for people to realize, though, that you can buy a mutual fund without paying a load. Not only can you do that, but you can keep your expenses so low that they're essentially free. I mean, you can buy every stock in the world for five basis points as an annual management fee, which is, you know, basically free when you can get expenses down that low. And so I think while there is no doubt that mutual fund expenses are an important drag on returns, it really isn't that hard to eliminate them from your portfolio. And is that mostly through using the uh, Vanguard ETFs and that sort of thing that you're talking about? Or is there other things that we ought to know about? Uh, That's exactly right. I mean, Vanguard's the only mutual mutual fund company. So when they can find a way to become more efficient, keep costs low, they pass it on to their owners who are also their investors. And so that's how, the, you know, through uh, efficiencies and increased volumes, they've been able to get their expenses down that low. So that's basically adds to your return. I mean, it really isn't difficult at all to get the market return because you can just basically buy the market for five basis points a year. But if you're trying to, you know, pick some, some Yahoo that's going to try to beat the market, well, then you're bringing on a lot more expenses and a lot more risk that you really don't have to be running. And in the long run, it's probably not wise to be running. So based on your projection, say if the physi- if physicians use the right formula, do the right things, what does a comfortable retirement look like? How do you make sure that you don't outlive your savings? Well, I think the key is to make sure you save enough as you go along to start with. I mean, some people are trying not to outlive their savings, but there's a dramatic misconnect between how much they've saved and how much they're spending. Those numbers are all, of course, tied together. But the basic formula is to take how much you're spending, subtract out any guaranteed or nearly guaranteed sources of income you have, and then make a projection based on how much you think you can take out of that portfolio each year safely without running out of money over a time period uh, about as long as your retirement. A typical number thrown out there is the 4% rule, where basically it says you can spend about 4% of your portfolio adjusted for inflation each year and not expect to run out of money in retirement. But the truth is, if you're just spending 4%, the typical average person ends up dying with 2.7 times what they actually retired with. So most of the time, you're able to adjust upward as you go from that 4%. But that 4% scenario is really to cover the scenario where you get sequence of returns risk, where the bad returns come early on in your retirement. And when that's the case, for example, if you retire two years before a huge bear market, then you better stick with the 4% figure or there's a decent chance you'll run out of money. But if you're really concerned about it, there are things you can do to reduce that risk even further. For example, you can buy a single premium immediate annuity. Well, I'm not a big fan of annuities in general because they tend to be fee-laden products designed to be sold, not bought. A single premium immediate annuity 
uh, is basically just buying a pension. And the market for that is very liquid and transparent. And the rates depend not only on interest rates in the market, but also on your age. So you can basically buy more guaranteed income, which allows you to spend a higher percentage of your portfolio without having to worry about running out of money. So do you envision a retirement making uh, as much money as you do during your uh, working years or, or a lot less? Frankly, I don't know if I'll ever retire. I think one of the keys to life is to find something you enjoy doing. Sure. And especially great if you can find uh, something you enjoy doing that actually pays you. Yep. But um, but for uh, your typical doctor who's thinking about retirement, if they use the if they use the formulas and stuff, are we what kind of retirement can they expect? Money wise. Well, the, tr- the truth of the matter is you don't need anywhere near your working income as a physician or other high income professional to maintain the same standard of living. A lot of people haven't done the math on this and realized how much less you need than what you were grossing as a physician to live exactly the same way. For example, think of all the expenses you won't be paying in retirement. You're not going to be paying Social Security and Medicare taxes. Your income taxes can be dramatically less. Maybe you give a little bit less to charity. If your mortgage is paid off, if your kids are already out of the house and through college, you don't have any work expenses, maybe you don't even need two cars for a couple. But when you run the math, you may find that you can have the exact same lifestyle on 20, 30, 40% of what you are making as an attending physician. I mean, if you're saving 20% toward retirement, you can cut that right off the top. You don't have to replace that because you don't have to save it for retirement once you retire. And so when I've run the numbers, it looks to me like I can probably have an income of about a quarter of what I'm making now and have the same lifestyle, which is a very good lifestyle. In the last three months, I've been on nine pleasure trips. You know, we're not hurting by any means, but I can maintain that for a heck of a lot less than I'm making now. And so I think the typical physician is going to retire on less gross income than he has during his working years. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I think if your goal is to actually have just as much income as you had during your working years, uh, I think you're probably going to die with a heck of a lot of money still left over. Well, that's certainly my goal. <laughs> so listen, uh, the other, it's, let's, let's keep going here. Now, cash flow. Well, I mean, well here's, the, here's the issue with it, right? I mean, there's a lot of doctors that want to retire. Yeah. They're sick of what they're doing. They're 55, they're 60, they want to be done. And if they work a few more years, sure, they can have that where they would be able to maintain that lifestyle and die with a lot of money in the bank. But a lot of them, given the option, would rather stop working now Uh, even if they don't die with a lot of money in the bank. Uh, They just don't want to run out of money. And so I think that's an important thing to realize, that some of us have different goals when it comes to our retirement spending and our legacy. Absolutely. I mean, for me, honestly, it's uh, the idea of, you know, making a a quarter of what I do now, that sort of thing is is probably not something that I'm interested in. But I mean, I, I think my expectations probably are a little bit different than your average doctor. So right. And you're also put willing to put in the work required to do that. Exactly. Example, some of these some of these uh, types of investments are really all small businesses that you're managing on your own. You know, for example, a, a real estate property that you're directly owning has a component of it that's passive as well as a component that's active. And uh, that represents some additional value add, some additional work you've added to the return of that investment. And in many ways, that's why the returns on a real estate investment can often be very good, because part of it is the passive return from your money, 
And the other part is the active return from your time and expertise. Yeah, I think expertise so, I think especially. Aspect. But you got to realize a lot of docs not only don't have that expertise, but aren't interested in putting that time in. Yeah, uh, no, I, I get that. But I would say that there are opportunities, and we talk a lot about them on this show, where people can invest in things that, for the most part, are turnkey, whether that's a turnkey rental in terms of, um, you know, rental houses where you don't really do much. And uh, frankly, I own, you know, multiple apartment buildings and, you know, I don't go there. I don't said I have enough property manager. So for me, those are incredibly passive uh, ways to invest. And for those people who don't have expertise, the other thing I'd like to point out is there are people like like me, like some of the others on the this um, that I've interviewed on this podcast that put together uh, deals uh, that are, you know, fractional ownership deals on larger assets and they cash flow really well. I mean, we're telling you, you know, double digit returns and we, we, we shoot for, you know, five year IRRs of 20%. So, so there is, there is opportunity out there. I think a lot of it is about education. It's about at least understanding the investment. And if you're willing to do that much, there is an opportunity out there, you know, cash flow investors like, like myself, we think in a very concrete nature. We like the idea of concrete nature of real assets and cash flow today, as opposed to the idea of building sort of a finite reservoir of wealth, which, um, you know, I think of investing as buying streams of income that don't end. And it's actually buying income. And so what do you think of the philosophy, that philosophy, you know, as opposed to more of sort of the growing reservoir of wealth that you end up uh, towards the end of your life? Well, I think what you're failing to see is that those two things are fungible. You know, money's fungible. I can sell, for example, if I've invested in a bunch of stock index funds, I can sell them at any time and buy a real estate property or other cash flow type investment. They're completely fungible. But at this point in my life, I don't need more income that I got to pay a bunch of taxes on. I'm looking for a way to grow my assets as quickly as possible in the most tax efficient manner as possible. And then you can spend from that any way you like. If you prefer to spend from you know, real estate rents, uh, you can always sell your mutual funds and buy a real estate property. There's nothing keeping you from doing that. And so this idea that you have to invest that way as you go along in order to invest that way as you're spending the money down, I think is, is a false dichotomy. You can switch between those investments. If you get sick of owning your apartment building, you can sell it and invest the proceeds into you know a mutual fund portfolio. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. One thing I do want to point out, though, in terms of my apartment buildings, because they're all leveraged, because of depreciation, I actually pay zero taxes on any of the income that I get from my apartment building. So that's that's something to keep in mind, actually. Yeah, with any type of investment, there's ways to make it more tax efficient. I mean, that's no different than investing in mutual funds in a Roth IRA. You know, as they grow, there's there's no tax bill to that. Yeah, you're right. And 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 I, I do think a Roth IRA is a great idea, particularly for people who have IRAs. And, uh, you know, if they want to, in my view, self-direct them. And what we've talked about on this show is how to redirect them and so that they can actually buy you know, real property and other cash flowing assets. But, you know, listen, this is this is a great conversation. And again, it's different perspectives from, you know, guys who are doing their homework and who are trying to, you know, do their best to to teach others. And, and obviously, you and I have both done pretty well for ourselves. Now, tell me a little bit about the book and tell me about the website and how my audience can access that work. 
Sure. The website's really easy. It's found at whitecoatinvestor.com. It's totally free to readers. Uh, I do sell ads on it. Like I said, it's an entrepreneurial venture for me, but all the information there is free to readers. I also publish a monthly newsletter, completely free. It goes out to about 10,000 people a month, and you can sign up for that on the website as well. But I've been blogging about three times a week for the last six years, and so uh, there's about a 1,000 different blog posts on there covering uh, just about any financial topic from the perspective of a doctor or other high-income professional. A lot of it is basic information, you know, how a mutual fund works, uh, how you can budget, um, how a Roth IRA or a 401k works, you know, how the tax code, some aspect of the tax code might work. And some of the discussions are, are pretty high level. So there's a, there's a wide variety of information available on the website. And I, I encourage you to check that out. There's a tab at the top that says start here. Uh, and that's a great place to start. The book is uh, a bit of a compilation of some stuff from the website, along with uh, other material that isn't found on the website at all. Put into a package that is easily readable, it's about four hours of reading, a lot of people do it in one sitting, that will not only help you to have the tools, the very basic tools, personal finance and investing, but also provide a little bit of inspiration that you too can build wealth as a physician. And so I think that's really useful for people to pick up and, you know, it's changed a lot of lives. I sell about a thousand copies a month of it just because it's made such a difference in the lives of so many. There you have it, folks. It's good to listen to different perspectives and people who listen to my show, you know, do have different perspectives, I think, for the most part. But the key is get educated, uh, learn more about what Jim has to say, you know, continue listening to me. But go to his site, see what he has to say. Just don't blindly throw your money into the Wall Street abyss. That's the key thing, and if you do that, you're going to be okay. Jim, thanks very much for being on the show. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's Buck Joffrey again. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Jim Dahl. Don't go away, though, because when we come back, you're going to hear Pete Matthew interview me and get a little bit different perspective. Are you ready for adventure and financial education? Imagine spending an entire week with like-minded investors, world-class educators, and real-world professionals. Join the Real Estate Guys radio show for the 15th annual Investor Summit. Returning this year are sales legend Tom Hopkins, international developer Beth Clifford, attorney Mauricio Raoul, and the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, G. Edward Griffin. And new for this year, come meet Buck Joffrey from the Wealth Formula podcast. Plus, joining us live and in person for his fifth Investor Summit, the incomparable Peter Schiff. Peter is one of the few people who called the mortgage meltdown in writing before it happened. So come and find out how you can be prepared for the next economic shift. It all begins April 1st in Houston, Texas. Visit realestateguysradio.com and click on the tab that says Summit to learn more. Or call 888-GUYS-RADIO to talk with our Summit specialist. Spend a week with the Real Estate Guys, Buck Joffrey, and an all-star faculty in the 15th annual Investors Summit at Sea. Well, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Buck Joffrey, who is speaking to us from over in Illinois in the States. Buck, welcome to the Meaningful Money Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Pete. Fantastic. It's great to have you. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Buck is the host of the Wealth Formula podcast, so always good to speak to a fellow podcaster. Um, and wealthformula.com is where he does most of his good work. Buck, let's start off, though. You can do a far better job of introducing yourself than, than I can. Yeah. So. Who are you? What do you do? And how did you end up uh, getting to this point in your life? Well, I'm actually a physician by training, specifically uh, training in head and neck surgery and plastic surgery. I finished my training uh, here in the U.S. in 2008. Well, and that was a 
when, of course, a lot of the senior physicians that I knew were losing 50 to 70 percent of their portfolios that they had <laughs> in the stock market, et cetera. So anyway, when I got done with training, I got a job with a national company after residency, uh, which was which is what we call it here. And I had some differences with management about how I felt like I wanted to practice and who I would want to operate on and that sort of thing. And, you know, I'm not a particularly good employee as a general rule, so they fired me. And um, <laughs> now that's not typical for doctors, but I think when you when you don't get along with management like anywhere else, they, they, you know, they'll fire you. And they fired me. But luckily for me, I was already, you know, I was already inspired by thinking about other things. And I had, you know, just read a Robert Kiyosaki book called The Cash Flow Quadrant. And it really sort of changed my perspective on things. So I went out on my own, uh, started my own practice business, and not to pat myself on the back too much, but became a millionaire about 18 months later. And this was coming off of making just about $50,000 a year as a resident. So it was a big difference. Now, so it wasn't easy, and certainly there was uh, some hurdles along the way. But so I later started a number of other high revenue businesses. And so I started, you know, really making a lot of money. And the one thing I was not going to do with that money was to put it back in the stock market and hand it over to Wall Street and then let them lose it the way they lost all that money from my senior physician friends in 2008. So I decided at that point that, you know, I want to learn as much about investing as I learned about how to make the money in the first place, right? That's one of the things that it seems like a lot of people don't think about. They think, how am I going to make money? But then they don't think, well, what am I going to do with it when I actually have it? So I, you know, really got down in the weeds and and tried to really teach myself. And I learned a lot and based a lot of what, you know, what I was doing. Um, My father is a, a real estate guy too. So I got really interested in real assets, had a lot of success in investing and pretty quickly minimized my own physician practice down to just a couple days per week. And I was only practicing because I liked it at that point. So I had friends and colleagues asking me, well, what are you doing? <laughs> okay, so well, how, how, is the, how are you having the success in that? So that's why I started the Wealth Formula podcast. And also at this point, um, that's why I you know, help people, uh, particularly higher paid professionals, invest their money uh, by putting together deals and, uh, and that sort of thing. That's an incredible biography. I I'd smiled at a couple of points in there. Yeah, a very throwaway comment. I began, you know, a few other high revenue businesses <laughs> as if that's the sort of thing you wake up and do before breakfast. But no, I mean, kudos, really, Buck, because obviously you've, you come a long way very quickly. I can imagine that seeing some of your colleagues, I, I imagine, very much set back by the uh, what we call the credit crunch here, you know, the financial crisis of 2007, 8, 9. I imagine seeing that and doubtless hearing about that from colleagues had a major uh, impact. What then, was it just the book? Was it just the Kiyosaki book that sort of made you look elsewhere? In part, yes. And, you know, I think I think the the key point about the Kiyosaki book was that you know, I was a classic academic kid, um, got good grades, and I actually, you know, got straight A's in college, straight A's in medical school, got into the training programs I wanted. So my head was down in the books, and I didn't really think about money at all. I mean, it really hadn't, I know in the U.S., you know, there's a controversy now because uh, even our own president has accused doctors of trying to just, you know, order tests for money and that sort of thing. But the reality is that doctors, for the most part, the people that I grew 
up with and went to school with who became doctors were not interested in money. They felt like they were going to be taken care of probably, but they really didn't think about it. So when I started making money, that was because of the Kiyosaki book, right? Because okay. I started thinking about, well, gosh, I don't have to go work for somebody and I don't have to be in a university setting, et cetera. I can do this on my own, do what I love. And if I can figure out how to do this right, I can actually make that money for myself. So that's the part that Kiyosaki played for me. Now, yes. you know, as you know, most people who read Kiyosaki books come out of that deciding they want to buy rental houses immediately. And yes. um, that wasn't my takeaway. My takeaway was there was different ways to do things than being an employee. Yeah, for sure. The quadrant thing. Yeah. Okay. When, uh, before, this is for, for you guys listening here, before we sort of hit record, Buck asked me about what I do. And so I said, I'm a CFP, Chartered Financial Planner. And so, you know, I've generally sort of preached the um, classic method of wealth building, low and slow, diversified asset allocation, all that sort of stuff. And on Buck's sort of one pager that, um, I was sent in advance of this. Um, Buck says that the old mantra of investing in a diversified portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds is outdated and dangerous for high-paid professionals given the volatility and instability of the current global economy. Now, I've told Buck he can't offend me. You know, I'm not sort of wedded to any one way of wealth creation. I think there's plenty of ways to skin a cat, and I'm really, really interested to know how you've done it, uh, Buck. So, yeah, I know, obviously, then you have strong feelings about investing uh, for cash flow as opposed maybe for asset growth. That's really what I want to sort of talk about. Why then is the sort of stock market and all that sort of stuff, why do you call it an outdated and dangerous paradigm? Is it just for high paid professionals or is that true for everybody? I think it's true for everybody. Let's, I guess, put it in context. You know, most professionals, uh, you know, anybody who's, you know, out there trying to slug away and make some money when they're investing for the most part, they're thinking about putting money away for retirement. And in the U.S., you know, uh, to figure out, uh, you know, how much to put away in that sort of thing, they use a lot of assumptions that are built, um, you know, you've got all these like retirement calculators and things like that that you can find on the Internet. When you dig down into those calculators, you know, there's a lot of assumptions there. You know, there's an assumption of maybe say, conservatively, 5% real growth or 7% nominal growth or an assumption of 2% inflation per year. And then ultimately, there's an assumption that you're going to outlive the money that you saved, you know, by just taking 4% per year. And that's what a lot of wealth ad advisors in the U.S. will tell you. Mm, far and, too simplistic. Right. Yeah. I mean, these are, I mean, these are the assumptions I've seen and I hear them over mm -hmm. and over and over again. So for me, there's just too many assumptions involved in the equation for me to bet my golden years on. So, you know, <laughs> listen, we live in unparalleled financial times, you know, interest rates have been pretty much zero for eight years. Uh, GDP in the U S here has been sluggish, you know, this entire time since then in our, in our national debt is has grown to just under $20 trillion. If you look at the stock market right now, it is completely overvalued. Now, let's look at the $20 trillion. From 1775, uh, after the American Revolution, after we got rid of you guys, uh, to, the year, to the year 2000, our national debt was $5 trillion. So what that means is that literally in the last 16 years, the national debt has increased four times as it did in the previous 225 years. Amazing. Now, no one knows where we're headed with this, okay, in, including our own Federal Reserve. And right now, it's all just a big experiment. And the last thing 
that I want to do during this, you know, this unprecedented time in our history is to make the same investment and assumptions that that people were making before this big mess. Mm, yeah, that's uh, it's hard to argue with that, Buck, for sure. So, what is the alternative then? If I mean, are you, are you saying that you know the sort of classic investments that there's no place for that whatsoever, or that it should be a smaller part, or that people shouldn't rely on it, or what? Well, not necessarily. I mean, let, well, let's see. Well, first of all, I believe in investing for cash flow rather than capital gains. It's fundamentally the biggest thing that I'm all about. And okay. for me, it takes a lot of the guessing out of how much you need in order to retire, right? Investing for capital gains for retirement, in my view, is like filling up a bottle of water as much as possible and then timing out little sips, hoping you die of something else before you die of thirst, right? <laughs> Nicely put. Now, yeah. I don't care how much is in that bottle myself when I'm investing the way I am. What I want to do is I want to create streams of income that aren't finite. And so nice. then you don't have to say, well, how long and how much do you put away to retire? You just keep investing this way. And then you at one point have a, enough uh, you know, income coming in that you know that if you want to, you can retire. It's It's really simple in my view. It's a much simpler way to think than to try to put in all of these additional factors and assumptions, right? You just wait yeah. until your streams of income exceed your needs. And the best part is, you know, you don't have to hurry up and die so that, <laughs> so that the money doesn't run out. So I don't believe in investing stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. I don't really, and I, I hate to say this to you, but I don't really even see them as real assets, I mean, in 2008, $7 trillion in wealth were lost by Americans in the stock market. They vanished. And to me, uh-huh. real wealth doesn't vanish into thin air, right? right. When you yep. own a rental property, for example, someone pays you rent to live in. It doesn't vanish. Even if Lehman Brothers goes out of business, you still have a rental house there. It just doesn't vanish into thin air. So I believe mm-hmm. in investing in real things. I believe in investing in things that you can easily understand. And frankly, with the way the economy is, I believe in investing in things that we need, like roofs over our head. We need energy and we need food, things like that. Okay, right. That makes sense. Yeah, I did smile when you said the real assets before, because I've, I've heard myself say that about things like stocks and shares, which I, technically, if I look <laughs> back to some of my old uh, exam texts, you know, that, that would probably be the case. But there is no question. They're a lot less real, a lot less tangible than bricks and mortar in a house, for sure. And that's why property is an incredible uh, investment well, uh, class and is so popular over here as well. So he, an interesting thing to look at. Okay, now I'm a business owner too, right? So mm. my businesses have an inherent value to them, okay? And at any given time, they may have more value and less value depending on what somebody decides the multiple in that industry is. But as an owner, I don't really care, right? I don't really care how much that business is worth if all I'm really doing is living off of it from cash flow. Right. Sure. So when you're investing in the stock market, you're owning parts of businesses. You're really focusing on what the multiple is the whole time. And it's a very different approach to being a business owner who's just collecting the cash. 
Yes, entirely different thought process. Yeah. I did a series on uh, net worth recently-ish, a few months ago now, and it really does. And I've, I've heard my say, myself say countless times, financial planning is about income over outgoings, fundamentally. It's about living within your means or making your means sufficient that they uh, exceed uh, what you need to live, which is exactly uh, what you just said, of course. Right. So we're talking about you know the over-indebtedness uh, of the world now and the vast increase in debt in the last, well, since the turn of the millennium. For most people, though, particularly if they're going to uh, build up a portfolio of real assets of the kind that you're talking about, there's probably going to be some debt involved in that as well. Is that part of how you do things or is it all cash? No, I love debt. I love debt. <laughs> I mean, I think debt is an important part of building wealth. You know, I think uh, obviously there's a difference between what, you know, and Kiyosaki would call bad debt versus good debt. Bad debt simply being things that, you know, they aren't going to make you money. They aren't going to amplify your return. So, I mean, obviously, if you look at uh, real estate in particular, I mean, you can take something that has a return if you paid for cash of, of 8% per year, and you can turn that into something that turns into 12 or 14 if you use the right leverage. I think those things are important. The other thing that I think debt is really helpful, and the reason I like it, is because in my view, at least in the U.S. and probably globally, I think we're going to see an acceleration of inflation. So if you have inflation growing and accelerating, it's it's not a bad deal to, to have money sitting in debt because uh, as, as inflation increases, the nominal value of your debt decreases. So I, I'm actually a big fan of debt. Cool. Yeah, and I've used the same distinction of good and bad bad debt before as well. Good debt is low interest stuff that enables you to buy things which I appreciate generally or that provide a positive cash flow, like you say. Bad debt is high interest uh, borrowing that people used to buy stuff which goes down in value, shiny toys and cars and things like that. Right. Um, all making sense to me so far, Buck, for sure. Is it um, realistic for ordinary people? I mean, I'm aware, obviously, that your primary market is – uh, highly paid professionals. There's plenty of those listening to this show, but there's plenty of ordinary people too. So is there a place for this in the world of ordinary folks um, who you know are able to save a little bit, uh, but are maybe not super high earners? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's just as realistic for ordinary people to invest uh, in the stock market as it, as it is in real assets. Um, okay. You know, if you have money to put in the stock market, you got money to, to, to invest in real things. I mean, you don't have to buy... You know, if you when you think about real estate, you don't have to buy a you know ten million dollar apartment building. You can buy a you know here in the states, uh, which uh, you know maybe some of your listeners might be interested. I mean, you could buy yeah you can buy rental houses here, turnkey rental houses, uh, meaning everything's done for you for you know fifty thousand dollar in cash in in like Alabama. Uh, right. You could do that by putting down eight thousand dollars and leveraging the rest. I mean, wow, and okay. it's not just real estate. That's in part what my show is all about. But also remember, you know, in the U.S. in particular, we have you know, these things called uh, uh, retirement accounts as 401ks, IRAs, things yep. like that. I don't know if uh, it's the same out there, but people are led to believe that they can only invest in uh, stocks, bonds and mutual funds, that sort of thing. But if they've got money in there. They can invest those in real assets as well. They just don't know about it. And so I have mm -hmm. an entire podcast dedicated to that topic. So, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, again, it's not just real estate. I've done shows on um, farmland. Uh, I've done shows uh -huh. on people who are, you know, you can buy a, a parcel of land uh, 
in South America growing coffee, which is nice because of, <laughs> it's always nice to get into, you know, addictive things. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, they tend to they tend to last. <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And worth just sort of clarifying for the sort of 60, 65% of people listening in the UK is that here in our, what we call a pension fund, you can't invest in residential property. So if it's somewhere where people are going to live, you can't currently put that inside a pension. You can hold uh, real estate if it's commercial. So you can, uh, you know, an industrial estate unit or something like that, or a shop, as long as there's no residential element to it, um, you can hold it in, in a pension. But if there's any element of residential, then you can't. So, I mean, that's quite interesting. I think I might to uh, have to <laughs> consider some real estate investing in the in uh, the US but well, actually there are I know there are similar things in the UK here yeah I mean there there absolutely is and and you know the other thing in the US is that crowdfunding has become a lot bigger you know making it easier for non high wealth people to to get involved in fractional ownership of real estate you know which is I think a very strong you know opportunity for people out there to again own assets but you know if you don't have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars or, or, or pounds or euros, then, then, you know, you might think that you're disqualified, but no, you, you actually can, and you can invest those things through crowdfunding in the U S and those might be opportunities to look into for some of the uh, quote unquote ordinary people as well. Yeah, sure. Okay. It's uh, similar to pooling investment, I suppose, in, in a mutual fund, but uh, in, in real assets. Cool. So we've established that you, you're, you know, this is a realistic option for ordinary folks. You know, like you say, if you've got money to invest in the stock market, then you can do it in real assets as well. I guess it may take you a little longer to get going. This is not the sort of thing you can put 200 bucks a month into or something like that is when you've got a little bit sort of put aside that maybe that can come become a deposit. You know, if you um, buy into the, the sort of debt scenario that you're talking about, it may be that you could borrow a little bit on your existing property, uh, your house, maybe borrow a little bit more on that and use that as a down payment on a rental property. Um, I've got two friends here uh, in the UK who run a, just an unbelievably popular podcast called The Property Podcast. And I know uh, that there's a, a lot of good stuff um, on there as well um, about this whole thing. Do you sort of help people come up with like a roadmap, Buck? Do you, have, um, do you help people have a plan for how they do this? You know, you buy this property now and, you know, get the cash flow up to this level. And then in another 18 months, you do the same again. Because you obviously just went into the stratosphere extremely quickly with your own businesses and investments. Do you, is that sort of uh, able to be replicated? Well, you know, I think it's a little bit trickier, obviously, for, for people who don't have the big income that they can drive yeah. into this right away. But, you know, listen, there's a beauty in investing for cash flow. I mean, and it's, uh, if you talk about a roadmap, it's, um, none of it's really theoretical. So if you go back to that rental house in Alabama, you know, that uh -huh. theoretical, rental house. By the way, I'm going to have a show on a guy who does turnkey rentals in Alabama. So that might be of interest to people who are, because <laughs> yeah, uh, that's why I'm, uh, it's on my mind. So say, let's use easier math. You you put down $10,000 and I don't know how many pounds that is now, but uh, Me neither. It's changing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and leverage is a little bit trickier, I guess, too. But so, okay, say you're putting $10,000 down um, and uh, you're getting 15% cash on cash. Now that may sound really high, but in reality, that is, you know, uh, getting, getting 10% plus on a rental house in the U S is pretty standard. 
Okay. Really? Yeah. So that means, um, now if you've got 15% cash on cash, that means you have increased your income by $1,500 per year. Okay. Do that okay. 10 times and you've increased your income by $15,000 per year. It's simple math, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, those things obviously appreciate. You're also, if you're using debt, you're paying down the, the debt and increasing your equity position. If you own something that produces cash flow and you keep accumulating that cash flow, then you'll ultimately get where you want to. And, um, and that way, the other nice thing about it is that you see the fruits of your labor right away, right? So when people typically invest for retirement, you know, they're, they're sort of throwing money into this theoretical pot for 20, 30 years at a time without seeing any yeah. fruits of, of their labor. But in this situation, every time that bump goes up, you're seeing it in real time. Yeah, sure. And you can express that in today's money terms, which is the biggest difficulty, I think, with long-term planning. Exactly. Okay. You said um, uh, about paying down the debt as well. That sort of made my ears prick up because very often uh, here in the UK anyway, people, when they are borrowing money to buy rental property, they often do it on an interest-only basis so that they pay the interest every month, but the, uh, the principal, the capital, never reduces. Is that different? Over in the U.S.? Yeah, it's very different. We typically um, will get a mortgage, which will include principal and interest. And so what happens okay. is if your monthly revenues exceed that principal interest in the various property taxes, effectively what you're doing is pulling off cash flow and having your tenants pay down your debt and increase your equity position. So Sure. It's, Makes perfect sense to me, yeah. It's like magic. And the other thing in the U.S., which is great for us in terms of taxes, and this, again, won't be relevant probably for you guys and unless, you know, I, I don't know how the taxes work there, but, you know, we have something here that we use a lot called depreciation. And uh, uh -huh. most of the time, when you have these rental properties, uh, our tax system allows us to, even though they tend to go up in value, uh, they allow us to depreciate the value of those assets over a period of time. So for rental properties, that might be, you know, say 27 and a half years. And what happens is whatever cash flow you we pull off, that depreciation, because we've leveraged, uh, that will offset the profit. So on paper, it looks like we're not making any money at all, and it's perfectly legal. So it's okay. it's pretty cool. That's why Donald Trump never paid taxes. That's it. <laughs> so. That's a hot topic right now. Right. Um, I'm very tempted to ask you uh, what your view on that, on the whole election thing is, but uh, that might be outside the scope. Because it's so, <laughs> for us looking at it over here, it's just mesmerizing and all very strange. But uh, uh, that, the... I think that's that's the case for most uh, most of us <laughs> here too. So, <laughs> okay, well that answers that. Um, all right. I'm, yeah, I'm fascinated. It's definitely different here, I think. Um, like I say, most people who get uh, who buy residential property uh, for an investment, they will tend to do it on an interest-only basis. Most, but not all. Certainly, I think if I was going to do it, I would want to pay down the debt and increase my equity, uh, as you rightly say. Thereby, I'm using other people's money, using the rental income to do that, increasing my, my own uh, net worth and ability to sell that property in due course. The tax breaks of rental property ownership are becoming a lot less over the next two or three years here in the UK, which makes it slightly less attractive. But still, there is something extremely comforting and tangible about owning property. Having done my job for 20 years and the vast majority of my clients have some element of their investment portfolio in property. 
it feels sort of good for the soul almost to actually be able to touch your investments. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, I imagine a- that feels absolutely. I, I think that, you know, that's one of the tenets of my, my investing philosophy is to invest in things that I can see, feel, or touch. I mean, and, and, and you know, even things like, even like energy, oil okay, and let's gas, talk about that. things like that. So how are you investing in those things then? I've invested in the U.S. You can invest in as an accredited investor. Again, this is if yes, you're making $200,000 plus per year or you have a net worth of over a million dollars. Um, you, you have opportunities that some of the, um, as you, as you may have described them, ordinary people don't. (laughs) And so what you can do is you can actually invest alongside some people who are drilling for oil and that sort of thing. So, so I've done a few of those investments and in the U S because there is a strong push for, um, oil independence. There was some ridiculous tax breaks where you could literally write off 90% plus of, of the actual investment you made in year one. So from a tax perspective, it, it, was, it was sort of a no-brainer. Now, the returns on that were quite good, but obviously that when oil goes from 100 bucks a barrel down to 40 it puts a little bit of a, a damper on that. But I, again, I'm not really worried about it because these are long-term investments. I, own, I have fractional ownership in, in oil wells. And... I believe uh, just because there's a finite amount of oil and we're not really that close to, you know, an oil independent world, that that is something that's going to come back up. I also know about a number of, you know, alternative energy investments uh, here in the U.S. I haven't necessarily invested in them yet, but I'm I'm looking pretty hard at those as well. Mm-hmm. There are definitely some tax breaks for alternative uh, energy investment here in the UK uh, through things like EISs and stuff like that. So, yeah, I've done uh, some uh, content on that in the past, but uh, those are useful alternatives as well. And a market which is only going to rise as it becomes uh, ever more uh, necessary. Cool. Just a couple more questions then, uh, Buck, really. Are there any sort of... Obviously, you've talked an extremely good story, and I'm I'm convinced. I was convinced before we came on the call. Really, I know that uh, what you're proposing, cash flow investing, is an extremely uh, valuable and valid way of investing. Are there any sort of potholes, though? You know, you, we've got to balance this a bit. Are there any disadvantages? Is there anything that people might need to be aware of before they consider it? Well, sure. I mean, I think the big difference is that first of all, like any investment, there's n- there's never a guarantee. But the difference is when there's a huge stock market correction and you lose all your money and you can't even really explain why, you know, when you own real things, at least most of the time, uh, when you hit a pothole and you actually know what happened and you can potentially fix it, right? So, you know, what can you do to fix a trillion dollar loss in the stock market because of a a bank failure? There's not a whole lot you can do. To me, the, the key is spending time learning how to invest. You know, this doesn't, this isn't something that you're born with. I've spent a, a lot of time reading books and, you know, going to seminars and, and, and probably the most important spending time networking with people. And, um, you know, one of my philosophies on investing right now, because I invest, you know, almost a hundred percent in, uh, private investments, like we're talking okay. about rather than is that I typically only invest with people that I know, like, and trust. Okay, Okay, I got to know, like, and trust these people. And it takes time to create those networks. And part of what I'm doing with Wealth Formula Podcast is I'm bringing on people uh, that I know, like, and trust. That doesn't mean that you're going to for sure make money with them, 
right? And some of those people I haven't invested with, but I do know them personally. I know people who've made money with them. And I also, you know, I, I know these people have integrity. So just because you want to do real asset investing doesn't mean you have to go out and become a landlord, right? You're just, sure. you're shifting your focus to handing your money to a wealth advisor or somebody and then just forgetting about it to actually, you know, learning about investments and then putting it into somebody's hands that you trust. Now that person may not make you money. It may not make you money, but the best, in my view, the best situation you can have is you can have an investment that you believe in and a person mm -hmm. who is sponsoring that, that investment that has in integrity so that you know that if you lose money, it wasn't because of foul play. Absolutely. A lot to be said for that. You talked about sort of self-education there. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but obviously you mentioned the Kawasaki books, but particularly the Cashflow Quadrant, which you mentioned. Any other resources that you might sort of uh, point people to to learn more about this stuff other than your own podcast, of course, which we'll talk about in a minute? You know, I listen to some podcasts. Um, if you want to learn more about real estate in the U.S., you know, my friends, uh, Russ and Robert at uh, the Real Estate Guys radio show, I think have a fantastic show and, and you can, you can learn a lot from those guys. And, um, I really like that. Let's see in terms of, you know, obviously Robert Kiyosaki has his own, uh, the rich dad radio show. Now, Robert, you know, he talks a lot about the economy in general. And I think that learning uh, a lot about or trying to get different perspectives on the economy is a really, really good idea at this point. Mm -hmm. So listening to, you know, even listening to people who are who sound like they always think that the sky's falling down, like guys like Peter Schiff. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. I, I listen to them because, you know, they have different perspectives. The other thing for me, though, is seminars. I mean, I like to go to seminars. I like to meet people. Um, and, for example, I think in April, the real estate guys who I was talking about before, who I'm, who I'm uh, friendly with, have a, a very neat uh, investor summit at sea, and they're going to have all sorts of different types of you know, people who put together deals, they have people who uh, know a lot about the economy, those types of things. So I, I you know, it's just cool. a variety of things like that. So yeah, cool. All right. I've uh, made a note of some of those. I'll make sure there's some links. Um, Russ and Robert and the real estate guys, they sound like uh, the US uh, yeah. version of uh, we have Rob and Rob over here. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> and they're uh, absolutely cleaning up. Um, Buck, thank you so much for your time. Where can folks find out a little bit more about you and what you're doing? The show, of course, is Wealth Formula Podcast, and you can download that on iTunes, Stitcher. You can also uh, listen to it just by going to wealthformula.com. Wealthformula.com has got probably more relevant a lot for uh, U.S. listeners because there's a lot of you know, basic financial stuff. Now, you know, generally sure. high-paid professionals and specialized people uh, sometimes don't know a lot about the basics of money. So I have a bunch of material on that. You can subscribe to my newsletter on there. Uh, and in fact, if you're interested in some of these uh, types of investments, uh, there is a an invest with me uh, button on there, which doesn't mean you're you're going to put money in my pocket. What it means is we, <laughs> you know, it, we're building sort of a, a community of uh, people that we actually kind of talk to one another and talk about who we know. Again, with the idea that investing with people who you know, like and trust is very powerful. So I'm trying to build a community there. So that's uh, that's another option. Very cool. Well, 20% of the people listening to this will be in the US, Buck. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm sure that folks will take advantage of that. Buck, thank you so much for your time and uh, great to speak to you from across the pond and have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. 
The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.